I want to I want to ask you to open your Bibles, even though Josh, thank you for reciting it, Josh, even though it's already been recited, would you turn your Bibles to Titus 2, verses 11 through 15, and let me also just, I, I, I really want us to remember, so I'm looking at the camera now, there's a lot of people that are part of Brandywine Grace Church that are at home right now, and I just want to say that uh, greeting this morning, God bless you guys, grace and peace to you all and I'm so thankful that you're joined in uh, together with us this morning to worship Jesus and even, and if you're watching this later maybe you're watching it later tonight or you're watching it later this week I pray that you would keep it turned on on YouTube or however you're, you found it and I pray that the Lord would speak to you as we as we worship him today I have a sense that I think we should always have a sense that God is with us. But I I have like this sense in my spirit that the Lord, that the Spirit of God is really present with us and really wants to speak to us. Some of you might be aware of that. Some of you might not be aware of that. I pray that by the end of the service, everybody would be aware of it. I... I had like inexplicable, um, really strange dreams last night. Now you might say, oh no, is he going to start talking about dreams? No. But they were tormenting me. I had dreams that I was committing bad sin. I had dreams that I was in a UFC fight. I kept waking up and someone was choking me to death. I had dreams about people who I knew that once loved each other that now hate each other. Like for real, that's true. But I was dreaming about them. And I couldn't sleep. I was tormented. And I felt like the Spirit of God was saying, you just get up and preach God's Word tomorrow. You just get up and do this because there's forces at work here. And, and God, I believe, wants to speak to us. And so I want to ask us to do two things. The, the first is this. For everyone that's here, you know of people that you haven't seen in a while, that are probably at home right now worshiping. I want us to just take a moment, and you're going to pray for someone that the Spirit of God brings to mind from our church. You're going to ask that God would speak to them right now. You're going to pray for them. And if you're at home, you're going to pray for someone else that's not seated in your home right now that you, that you know from Brandywine Grace. You're going to pray for them. And then at the end of that, we're just going to take a moment of silence. At the end of that, I want you to do what Andrea's word, I felt like that word was so vivid. And, and, and what stuck out to me is open up your hearts to God. Open up your hearts to the Spirit of God. So pray right now. And then we'll end by asking God to open. That, that we're just going to say our hearts are open to you, Lord. And then we'll, then I'll preach.
Let's just say this together. Lord, we open your, our hearts to you right now. Lord, we open our hearts to you right now. Lord, we're opening our hearts to you. Open the eyes of our heart. Cause us to wonder and help us. In the Spirit, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're at Titus 2, 11 through 15. That's where we're going to be today. My wife, for her junior year of college, studied in Madrid, the Universidad de Madrid. Didn't that sound good? I don't know Spanish. I thought that sounded pretty good. Um, she went to Madrid, and at the time, she would say, I'm, I'm, she, she's aware of me telling the story. She's not aware of totally what I'll say, so I'll look at her and I'll apologize later, I guess. No, I won't say anything bad. But at the time, she wasn't really living for Jesus. So she was over in Spain for the entire year. And one of the things that she and her friends did a lot of, wanted to do, was party and go to nightclubs. And the nightclub scene in Europe is extremely elitist. So the, the nightclubs are very crowded, and a lot of people want to get in. And so bouncers play a very unique role in the nightclubs of Europe. The bouncers aren't just required for removing rowdy drunks, which they do that. They also serve as the control valve for who gets into the club and who doesn't. And so Amy would tell these stories of how these typically handsome, buff dudes would sit at the front of the nightclub and a mass of people would gather and they would look out over that mass of people and because they were in Spain, they used Spanish, they would look out and point at people and say, esta si, esta si, esta no, esta no, esta si, esta si, esta no, esta no, esta no, esta si. This one, yes. This one, no. This one, yes. This one, no. Esta si, esta no. And that reminded me of this passage of scripture. That reminded me of what Paul is telling Titus. He says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, teaching us to say, to renounce, esta no, to ungodliness, to worldly passions, esta si, to upright, self-controlled, godly living. The life of a Christian is all about a continual review of life's options, life's choices, life's behaviors, life's actions. And if there's a continual processing that should be going in on in our hearts where we are looking at life and our choices and saying, no to that, yes to this. No to that, yes to this. Esta si, esta no. Esta si, esta no. 
What criteria do you use, Christian, to determine what you won't do, say, and think, and what you will do, say, and think? What is informing that? Why do we do what we do? Why do we think what we think? Why do we say what we say? And what and who governs all of those actions and responses? As a Christian, what teaches you to say, some, to say no to some things and to say yes to other things? What are the grace effects of your life? So in other words, what I'm saying is what effect has grace had upon your life? This message is called Grace Effects. Sadly, you know what the statistics show? I'll just give you some. Here's what the statistics show. That the incidence of sexual promiscuity among younger people in the church is not that much different than younger people in society. The frequency of unfaithfulness among pastors is an epidemic. The reality that your marriage will remain and not be battered and broken and actually end in divorce. Statistics show is not all that different than the number of marriages in society. People who would not proclaim Christ would not end up battered and broken and divorced. Did you know that the abortion rate is not significantly different in similar socioeconomic status from people outside of the church and inside the church. Which means then that the truth of what Paul is teaching Titus is being largely ignored by many people that call themselves Christians. I just, this is what I want. I just want, I believe God wants, I want what I believe God wants. I just want Brandywine Grace to be the people that God has saved us to be. Is there anybody with me? I just want. I want the grace of God which has totally transformed my life and your lives to actually make a difference.
This passage helps us to understand some concepts which are typically which are which don't come natural to us and are typically foreign to us that are opposed to our common thought about the nature of God's grace. Let me just repeat, and I repeat it over and over again, and I'll continue to repeat it because after all, grace is part of our name. Brandywine grace. Grace means that your salvation is not ever earned by anything you do. Grace means that, that salvation is unmerited and by grace alone. Grace means that God's favor towards us can't be earned. It's unchanging. But, the result of this glorious work has led some to believe, I dare say even some of us, to believe, to suppose that if good works don't determine God's affection for us, then there is no reason to do them. Why be concerned about godliness? After all, we're saved by grace. I don't want to go to a legalistic church. I've been saved by grace. This is why I love expository preaching. By that, I mean working right through the scripture. I'm just working right through Titus. We're working right through Titus. And this is what Titus, what Paul wrote to Titus, which is by the Holy Spirit, anointed and inspired and alive for us. Amen? So I ask again, why should we be concerned about godliness if we're saved by grace? Answer. Because when Jesus stepped in to my life, when the grace of God and appeared, appeared, stepped into the dirty muck of my life, which was sweeping me away to eternal death. And he embraced my muck and my dirtiness and the sins of this world. And lived a perfect life and died a death he didn't deserve. And his blood washed away all of that muck and all of that filth and all of that dirtiness and all of that sin. That when he did that, he did that so permanently that he doesn't want me to go back to that place that he has rescued me from. Can I get an amen? This is the truth of God's word. Such amazing grace should make us so in love with Jesus that we can't stand doing things that he died to rescue us from. We can't stand the thought of restaining our lives with sin. Am I saying we don't sin anymore? No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I'm saying we don't like it. 
I love when J.C. Ryle said something like that to, to me. He didn't say it literally to me, but he said it to me when I was reading. He said, everybody experiences spiritual falls, spiritual declensions. The difference between a true believer and, and not is that you don't want to stay in that fallen place. You'd rather be closer to Jesus again. Biblical grace makes us intolerant of sin and evil in our lives. It's one of the effects of grace. Biblical grace compels us to live upright, self-controlled, godly, enthusiastic, energetic living for Jesus. Is the grace of God doing that in you? That's what we're asking. So as the grace of God, so it work in you that it's producing an intolerance of evil and a desire to, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly. Is it doing that, church? I believe it is doing it in many of us. So now what we're going to do, this is how we're going to break this sermon down. We're going to talk about Christian living. And Christian living, which is what Paul's talking about, he's saying the grace of God has appeared, and, 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 then I'll, and then I'll move towards the end. He says that we're supposed to live right now in this present age in light of the grace that has come to us and is coming again for us. So, so what I want to do is I want to think about Christian living in this way. Christian living requires a, an orientation. It requires a constant conscious recognition of your orientation now because of the grace of God. So what I'm saying is we live in constant awareness of the grace of God that has saved us. If you try to do godly living, any aced unknowing and aced seeing, apart from the grace of the gospel, it won't be long before you are tired, beat down, discouraged, because you can't do it. That's what Paul's saying. I'm racing ahead into my message, but I want you to see grace empowers holiness. Grace compels holiness. Grace produces holiness. If you lose your grace orientation, then the rest of the sermon that I'll preach will, will, will ultimately fail. It won't work because we need grace to transform us. We need grace to change us. So I want to give you a description of Christian living, which is an awareness of a conscious orientation, or I might say a conscious grace orientation and always aware of grace orientation and then I want to end by talking about what that produces and what it produces is an enthusiastic determination so so a a conscious orientation which leads to an enthusiastic determination that'll help you give some things to put things into categories so let's start with a conscious orientation. Now, I want you to remember. Do you remember where, where uh, J. Russ left off last week? Do you remember the message from last week? You guys remember that? And, and where did he leave off? What was he talking about? He left us with some instructions that someone, I would love to do a quiz right now to see if you're getting this. Who wrote the letter? Just shout it out. 
Paul, and he wrote it to Titus, and Titus has shown up on the scene. Paul, Paul said there's some work left in this church in Crete, unfinished, so you've got to do this. So I want you to use sound doctrine, right? Sound doctrine plus what? Somebody faithful application will equal what? That should encourage you, bro. They, they remembered your sermon. So, so he's been teaching sound doctrine. To whom has he been teaching? Remember? Older men, younger men, older women, younger women, and servants or slaves. He just gave all these instructions to. And now, after giving those instructions, he's going to define grace for us. Guys, Paul never does it this way. He never does it this way. He always, almost always probably, there's probably one example you could give, but he almost always preaches grace, and then in Stott's words, he follows that preaching of grace with what Stott says is a mighty therefore. So he tells you all about what Jesus has done, and then he says, therefore, do this. This time it's flipped. He gives us all these commands, all these duties. And then he gives a ringing, because. And then he preaches the grace of the gospel. What am I trying to do here? Don't divorce doctrine from duty. Don't divorce grace from obedience. The two go together. There is an, in, an unbreakable link between the doctrine of grace and the duty that he calls us to. We can't get that confused. I can't say that enough. Now, look at what Paul does here. He speaks about two appearings. Is everybody with me? Give me something. So you're with me. At home, you're with me, right? What Paul is saying, he speaks about two appearances. Whenever you see words repeated, you've got to say, huh, I wonder what the Spirit of God wants to teach me with that. He's repeating two appearances. Do you see what he said? For the grace of God has appeared. You know what the Greek word is? Epiphany. We had an epiphany. The grace of God epiphanied. What's an epiphany? It means a visible appearance of something or someone previously invisible. An epiphany is usually used to explain the, you know, I just don't get up early enough to watch the sunrise. Every morning there is an epiphany. We go from darkness to dawn daybreak. And the word epiphany describes the sun coming up and breaking into darkness. That is what happened to you if you're a Christian. You were in total spiritual darkness, and the grace of God, epiphanied, broke like the sun, like the daybreak, and it shined its heart on you and rescued you. You happy about that? Paul talks about the appearance. The first appearance was the, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This is not a trick question. When did that grace of God appear, bringing salvation to all people? When Jesus, Jesus what? When he, was, when he came. When he came, 
When he appeared, he brought salvation with him. Now, look at this, though. Check this out. Paul talks about another appearance. He tells us what that grace of God has appeared and then what it does. And then Josh recited this, waiting for our blessed hope, the what? Appearing the epiphany of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what he means by this. There's going to be another epiphany connected with your salvation. Do you know when that epiphany is? When Jesus returns. Two epiphanies. One has already come. One is yet to come. Where do you live? Right in between the two. And so God has something to say to everyone who lives between those two great epiphanies. You with me? What Paul is doing is he's giving you an orienting perspective. He's saying, in light, when you look at the grace of God in the past and you consider the grace of God in the future, then that affects how you'll live right now. It's not that hard to understand this stuff. Living right now in this present age, and oh, do we have a hard age to live in. Can I get an amen on that? We are living through a difficult age. Living in the present age is challenging. And the challenge is going to be met when you keep your situational awareness, when you keep your awareness of God's grace to you in the past and God's promised grace to you in the future. That's what's going to help you to live right here, right now. Who needs it? I need this. I need it. You need it. I know you do. Situational awareness is a term first used by U.S. Air Force pilots in World War II. And what situational awareness means is pilots had to be constantly aware of what was going on all around them. I don't know if you remember the, the movie Top Gun. I think they're remaking it, or they will once this pandemic's over, and I'm not even sure I would recommend it. But I do remember watching that movie as a teenager, and one of the things that sticks in my mind is when they were having these fighter jet uh, dogfights, yeah, interactions, that, that they were constantly looking all around. Situational awareness. I need to know what's going on just behind me, I need to know what's going on around me, and I need to be able to anticipate what's going to happen in the future. Why? So that I can make the right decision right now. When you're an Air Force pilot, things are happening fast. Wham, 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 bullets flying, everything. When you live in a present age, things coming at you fast. You need situational awareness. You need a grace-orienting perspective. I'm repeating myself, aren't I? You need a grace-orienting perspective. You need to know right now what God has done in the past and what he's promised to do in the future. And that will influence and affect how you live right here, right now. Now, let's remember, Paul has just given these instructions. He's said these things to the church. He's called us to. You might say these are the demands of discipleship. You might say that, the, that what he's taught, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, 
bond servants, what he's taught them are the demands of discipleship. So grace has come, so you live this way. But then he says this big because to emphasize the incredible grace of God. And what he's basically saying is you can't do anything that I just told you to do. All the things that Titus just told you to do, you can't do it unless you get God's grace. So Christianity at its heart is not first what you do. It's first what God has done. It's always that. I saw, I went on Twitter. I shouldn't have done that. That's probably why I had demonic dreams. I went on Twitter last night, and someone said, there was a picture of the ark, and it said, obedience is what saved Noah. And I said, <laughs> go read the account. I guarantee you will read it, that God's grace appeared to him first, and then he obeyed obedience never precedes God's love for you. That would be to ruin grace. It it wouldn't be grace. There would be no grace in the Bible if it was obedience first. You get what I'm saying. So it's not first what we must do. It's all about what God has done. So the message we have to preach, that Paul must preach to Titus, that Titus must preach to the churches, that I must preach to you, that you must preach to your friends and your family, is not first what they have to do, but first what God's grace has accomplished for them. That's good news. The other one's bad news. This is good news. God's grace has come. It's appeared. And I love this. Let's not pass over this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, church, for whom? All people. That means the grace of God is available to friend or foe, to young or old, to Republican or Democrat, to black, brown, or white, to poor and rich, to male and female. And when that grace of God comes to you, it totally transforms you and compels you. We get this conscious orientation that grace is now the history-defining moment of your life. Time is defined in B.C. A.D. Your life as a Christian is now defined as when grace appeared and the grace that's coming again in the future, which is eternal, let me remind you. So that timeline's going on and on and on and on. Part of where I'm going, when I'm talking about orientation, part of where I'm going is knowing where I'm coming from. Part Part of where I'm going is knowing where I'm going. Then that affects us now. Can we move on? We've talked about a grace orientation, a conscious orientation. What does that orientation produce? An enthusiastic determination. Say it with me. An enthusiastic determination. I hope that's not tricky language. Enthusiastic, energetic, energetic determination to live a certain way. Verse 14, look at what he says. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for what, church? Say it. Good works. Zealous. 
It's just another word for enthusiastic. It's just another word for energetic. People of God want to be about good works. They want to live their lives for Jesus. He wants, Paul wants, that the combined message of such an intimate and incredible salvation to so influence your life and, and, and affect you so that you live right now aware of it. Our hearts, when we think about grace, we were just thinking about grace, and I can see it was affecting a lot of you. When we think about grace, our hearts should overflow with gratitude, with joy, with thanksgiving, with worship, but also with determination. Doesn't stop at worship. Let's stop at joy. Let's stop at gratitude. Got to keep going. That's what Paul is urging Timothy to. Our determination, though, is not to rescue ourselves. I'm going to repeat it. But it is the actions. Our determination is the actions who, of someone who truly recognized the danger they were in and how God has rescued them from it. That's what produces enthusiastic determination. And it looks like this, saying no, saying yes. So it looks like saying no to certain things and actually not saying yes, living yes. So it looks like saying no, living yes. He says, teaching us to renounce ungodliness. Godliness is just a reference for Christian conduct. So you put the un in front of it. And it changes it, right? It teaches us to say no to everything that doesn't look like Christian living, that doesn't look like Christian conduct. And he also tells us to stay away from worldly passions. Conduct is what everybody sees. It's, ex it's external. That's important, right? But lest you think that it's only externals, he says you also got to say no to everything that's going on in here that doesn't line up with the gospel. So in other words, what grace transforms is the whole you, not just the pharisaical you, not just the outside you. Too many churches today get that right. They got it right. I got to look a certain way when I show up for a church gathering, but my life the rest of the week doesn't resemble anything like that. Jesus would say, that's a total problem. I didn't rescue you so that you could live that way. I rescued you so you wouldn't go back to that old way of living. I rescued you so that you might be transformed outwardly and inwardly. Oh man, my heart. These are the actions or the consequences of grace. So when grace appears, do you remember when grace appeared to Isaiah? When grace appeared to Isaiah, when he saw the glory of the Lord, he said something. He said, woe is me, I am ruined. So that's, a, that's, a, that's what it looks like when grace comes to you. When the grace of God comes to you, you say, oh my goodness, in light of God and what I need, 
I, woe is me. You don't care about everyone else. You only care about you and your own standing with God. And it produces that response. Woe is me. I'm totally ruined. And then you remember the story. Seraph grabs a coal from the fire, comes and touches the prophet's lips, because lips are what they use very much, so they speak a lot. And he touches his lips, and he rescues him, and he redeems him. But it doesn't stop there. Do you know what Isaiah says? Isaiah, they go on to say, hey, there's some work that needs to be done. There's someone that needs to go proclaim the grace of God. A minute ago, he said, woe is me. I'm totally ruined. I'm totally disqualified. Right after that singeing coal, the grace and mercy of God, here I am, send me. If no one else will go, I'll go. What's the point? The point is when grace transforms you, it changes your life and gives you a desire to say, ace does no to some things, ace does see to some things. Everybody tracking with me? So there are these negative compulsions, but there are these positive compulsions as well. There's clearly a saying no, but there's living yes. Training us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and look at it, church, you read it. And to what? Live self-controlled. Anybody that's got it, you can read it. Live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. That's what we're supposed to say yes to. We're supposed to say yes to life. These are the positives. Controlling your passions. Controlling your uprightness. Controlling your, your sense of godliness. I love how comprehensive this is because taking together, it means the life of grace is comprehensive. It affects your relationship with yourself, that's self-controlled. It affects your relationship with others, that's living upright. And it affects your relationship with God, that's godly. It's comprehensive. Grace affects. Grace affects. The ethics of grace require us to ask honest questions about the things we do, the things we watch, the things we say, the things we think. You ready for this? Here we go. Here's my challenge. Here's the enemy at work. There are some people right now who love this message. You love it maybe for the wrong reasons. You love it because you love a message that gets down to what I got to do. You're just one of those doer people. You're one of those Navy SEALs J. Russ was talking about. Sign me up. Give me some demands because I can meet them. That's the kind of Christian I am. I don't want none of them always needing grace, powder in their bottoms kind of Christians. I like a Christian that can get stuff done. And that's me. So you love this message, and you're going to text me afterwards, and you're going to say, I'm a Navy SEAL type, and I love what you were dropping on us today. And there's some other people that got an email coming. Maybe you're at home. You got an email coming because this sounds too much like work. This sounds too legalistic. I'm going to get them. I'm going to get them. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was waiting for you to say it because I got my text already. I might already have a text from somebody who thinks, where's the grace? Have I been preaching grace today? I'm not asking for vindication. I'm just saying, before God, have I preached grace today? I'm saying grace. I'm saying everything that I'm saying after this comes after grace. You got me? Somebody feel me. So here's the question. 
Does what you're doing right now reflect the conviction that our King Jesus has rescued you from the death grasp that sin had on you and is coming back one day in power and glory? That's this text. Jonathan Edwards resolved never to do anything that if Christ returns at that moment and caught him doing it, he wouldn't be ashamed. Would Jesus still save him? Yes, I believe he would. But you don't want that, right? You don't want your guest to show up when you're doing something heinous. He's saying, that's this text. He's saying, hey, God has so changed my life that now I live my life so that I'm resolving to do anything that if he shows up like he says he's going to show up, like a thief in the night, he won't catch me doing or saying or acting in a way that would bring him grief. You with me? Are we doing everything? Paul said in another letter, whether we eat or drink for the glory of God, or does God go away when the lights go out? Or if there's one thing God can't see, it's a Google search. Some diagnostic questions to help us to live energetically for Jesus. You ready for them? I'm going to give you three diagnostic questions to help you, to help us to live energetically and enthusiastically for Jesus. The first one is this. Have we lost the ability to say no? Brian Chappell did some of these questions I read in his commentary, and they were helpful to me. Have we lost the ability to say no? Here's the honest question, and nobody can answer this but you. Honestly, are you being more controlled by worldly passions and lusts or more controlled by godly desire? Only you can answer that question. Now, you can ask other people for their perspective, and that's helpful. That's what community is all about. That's what fight clubs are all about. But I'm asking you, Spirit of God, I'm saying, Spirit of God, search our hearts and answer that question honestly. Am I enslaved or controlled more by the lusts of this world or by love for Jesus and his love for me? Jesus takes every idol of our culture. Let me name the big three. Sex, power, and money. He takes every idol, all of those and every other idol of culture, and he requires that it bow down before him. So I ask this question. Are you more characterized by bowing down to those idols or more characterized by bowing down to Jesus? So, so, So here's another way of looking at it. Is there any presence of saying a stun no in your life? When's the last time you said, I can't do that, I can't think that, I can't say that, because the grace of God has appeared and rescued me, and the grace of God is coming again to, to lead me into everlasting glory. So right now, in this present age, I can't, I can't do that. 
We have a society, church, I'm going to go a little bit longer this morning. We have a society that holds back from nothing. We don't like restraint. We hate being told no. This is hard. What Paul is saying is hard. And if it doesn't feel hard, then you're not letting the reality of it speak to you. It's supposed to feel hard. So here's the thing. Does it feel hard? Rejoice. The grace of God is at work in your life. If there's no resistance, if there's no saying no to anything, this text isn't at work in your life. If there's no restraint, if there's no saying no, can you really convince yourself that you're living conscious of grace? You're living unconscious of grace. That's the first question. Second question, have we lost the concern of living yes? Have we lost our concern for living yes? That's what Paul is calling for. We must live yes, not because, we wanna, not because we're trying to earn God's affections, but does it please God when we live yes? That's not a trick question. Stay with me. I, I'm at 38 minutes. You can d- dig in here, church. Dig in. You can stay with me. Does does the grace of God compel some kind of desire to live? Yes. Yes. Is it because you're going to earn from God? No. Is it going to please God? Yes. Don't you want to please the one who rescued you from all your muck and filth? Yes. So, So this is obvious, but there's another appeal I want to make. The limitations of grace don't allow me or other Christians to live in such a way that it disregards the effect of your thoughts and actions and words on others. You, we have to consider our witness, church. If ever there was a watching world, Paul, that's what Paul is saying. Don't look anybody, don't let anybody look down on you for these things. You just keep preaching the grace of the gospel. You keep preaching the demands and a response to the gospel. You keep preaching grace and you keep calling people to live their lives in light of grace. Don't stop doing that, Titus. Don't stop doing that, church. Because there's a watching world. A watching world that is already anti-Christian apart from the grace of God opening their eyes. And Christians should not do things that actually fortify a non-Christian's belief that the grace of of the gospel makes no difference. Jerry Falwell this week. You guys familiar? What's going on there? President of Liberty University. We've got some Liberty alum in here. He did some things that Christians should not do. Can he be forgiven? Of course. But he did things. Listen, if any of the elders posts on social media a picture of themselves with another woman and their pants unzipped and her pants unzipped and then and holding alcohol which there's no thing wrong with alcohol what's funny is he tried to say it was dyed black colored 
he had colored it for the picture so it looked like alcohol. There's so many things wrong with this, guys. I don't usually do this. I don't usually call out people. I, I'm saying it's illustrative, though, for what I'm saying. The grace of God has appeared and teaches us to say no to certain kinds of things and to say yes to certain kinds of things. Do you know what our witness does? Do you know what happens? Go look on the news right now. Look at what's happening with regard to Christianity because a, a prominent Christian leader has lived in a way that's not without a grace orientation. And an apology that says, I got to be a better boy, is not sufficient. So I think his removal from office was appropriate. Grace teaches us to say no. If anybody says that we have to do these things to earn love, that's legalistic trash. If anybody says that, that if anybody gives you standards that you can't find in Scripture, that's Pharisaic rubbish. But if anyone says it doesn't matter what we do or how we live, that is selfish, it's unbiblical, and it damages the gospel, and it damages our witness. Who's with me? Last diagnostic question. Are we willing to act now? Get the band to return. Are you willing to act now? Are you willing to, to consider anything that, that showed up by the Spirit of God that you should be renouncing that you haven't been renouncing? Are you willing to act now? Are you willing to repent and seek God for grace and change? Not everything, what we're talking about, godly living is, is about a relationship with God. So when you have a close relationship with God, you know how he feels about things. You know how he thinks about things. And so you don't need letter of the law. You get the Spirit of God working in you and convicting you. Is the Spirit of God working in you, convicting you to act right here, right now? It doesn't come easy, this kind of living. It doesn't come naturally. It's costly. What could ignite enthusiastic living for Jesus today? The appearance of his grace in the past and, the, and his love for us that's coming for all eternity. Henry Skugel, I'll end with this quote. The love of the world and the love of God are like the scales of a balance. As the one falleth, the other doth rise. Love for the world will squeeze love for God out of your heart. Think of your heart as this space radar. If there's love for the world in it, it's boxing out. That's basketball terminology. You're putting your butt on somebody to get them out. You see? You know what love for the Jesus does? Squeezing out love for the world, which is rising and falling in you. I pray that the incredible grace of God is squeezing love for the world out of our hearts. That we might live lives renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions and living saying yes, estasi, to self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Amen? Thanks for giving me your attention. I went a little bit longer today. Let's worship. Amen.